We'll be in Matthew chapter 2. Let's pray. Lord, may we be like the wise kings who were guarded on their journey by you and guided to you by a star. Grant us the wisdom to seek you. Grant us the light to guide us to you. Grant us the courage to search until we find you. Grant us the grace to worship you in spirit and truth. And grant us the generosity to lay our gifts, our very lives before you. To you, the King eternal, immortal, invisible. To you, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is born. Oh, come, let us adore him. Uh, Albert just said, I'm going to throw him under the bus now. He just said, he is risen. <laughs> yeah, a few months, Albert, a few months. Um, but he is risen. That's true. That's, that is a fact. He is risen, and he's not, not, written, not, not risen. Um, okay, let's... Uh... There we go. Come, let us adore him. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the sons of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi quite literally, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now there's a wink in there that you can't see in the text. He's not going to worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Worship happens when God acts and we respond. That's when worship happens. Now, sometimes we get this backwards, 
and we think that worship is when we act and God responds. And sometimes we come and we sing or we come to church and we think that it's by our piety, our good, our good hearted nature to come. And like, because we're here, God's going to bless us. Like God's going to, God's going to do this because I came. Now we do sing as we gather, may your spirit work within us. As we gather, may we glorify your name, knowing well that as our hearts begin to worship, we'll be blessed because we came, right? We sing that at the opening of our service every week for like 12 years or so. We're not saying because we showed up, you're going to bless us. We're actually saying because we've gathered in a room in which Christ is already present. The blessing is here. God has acted. We're responding. You're leaving your house tonight was your response to the God who has already acted. You're standing or kneeling, or sitting, or praying, or singing, or looking at the scriptures, or coming to receive communion. These are all acts of response to the God who has acted. And that is exactly what Christmas is. Christmas is worship. Because Christmas is when God acted. I mean, he had acted in the past, but he clearly acts in Christ And the wise men respond. The kings come. From this moment, we can now draw near because he's come to us. Our worship is not about trying to clamor up to God. He's come to us. We're now responding. And he's bringing us up to God. That's what worship is. Worship is an ascent. Okay, When we worship together, we're coming to God but not us making ourselves get there. It's Christ because he's come to meet us here. He can pull us up to the throne. He can pull us up into the presence of God. He can bring us that place where our hearts are set on fire and our nature is changed. That's worship. God acts and we respond and we know he has acted. I mean, think about this. First John chapter four, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. This is just right straight from the Bible that God acted, we're responding. He loved, so we love. It does not say we first loved him, so then God's like, oh, I've got fans. I should lavish praises or blessings upon them. That's not how it works. That's what religion is, and that's what other so-called religions are, is they're trying to get favor from the gods. Literally, paganism is about being in debt to the gods and trying not to get them to kill you, trying to get them on your good side. But that's not Christianity. God has acted. Christmas is proof of one of his many acts. He is acting tonight. We respond. So tonight we're celebrating the coming of the kings. The Magi uh, refers to the fact that they were possibly astrologers studying the heavens. <laughs> Isn't it cool that God shows them something about himself through the thing that they're worshiping? It's almost like the stars are like, enough with looking at us, look at him. And they're like, oh, we haven't seen that before. Um, So we see here in Matthew 2 that God acted. Where is he? This is Matthew 2 verse 2. They say, where is he who has been born? King of the Jews. God has acted. Christ has been born. 
And then we see the, the king's response. They respond, for we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. Christ was born. The star appeared. God is acted. They have now come to worship him. Okay, you see? So I think it's very clear what we're seeing, this pattern of God is the one who steps into our story, and then we turn our stories to him, off of ourselves and toward him. So these kings, and the reason I want to look at them, at least tonight, or the way we're going to look at them, there's so much. I was looking at this passage, and I'm like, so many things you can cover. I wanted to just talk about the star for a while. But I'm like, ah, that's not really what this message is about. Not this year, anyways. Um, so much you can say about the star. Like, there's so many theories out there. You might remember, this was either last year or two years ago. Uh, there was like the Christmas star, like planets aligned or something, and it created this really cool phenomenon in the sky. Do you remember that? Um, so some people are like, this might have been what had happened, you know, in 4 BC when Christ was born. And, and maybe it could have been like a literal, like astronomical um, um, wonder. Um, but then on the other hand, the Bible often, often associates angels with stars. And you could say, well, if the star is moving and pointing out the location, and when they saw it settle here and they rejoice, it could be that these guys are looking at the stars and there they see there's something more glorious than a star happening. They're actually seeing some sort of angelic being or host leading them. That could also be possible. I really like that idea. I don't know if that's what happened. Um, and by the way, did you know ancient people did associate stars with the gods? Uh, pagans would often do that. That's why Moses told them, do not worship the stars. It's not that um, people were just like, oh, stars are worthy of our worship. I mean, they're so far away. It's that they actually believed that the, the divine embodiment was up there and, it, and it manifesting themselves. So actually, there were times when, I said I'm not going to talk about stars, and here I go. There were times when um, court pro poets and prophets in kingdoms would, would um, see a shooting star or like a comet or some sort of phenomenon in the sky, and they would predict they would, like, something's happening, and, and kings would get so paranoid because they believed that, like, the things of the heavens were happening there as reflections of what's happening on earth, that if a star showed up, it means a new king is born or a king's about to die. So this is why Herod is a little worried. And so some emperors would actually execute prophets who talked about <laughs> stars showing up because they're like, well, maybe you will fulfill the death that's prophesied in the skies. This is how ancient people saw it. So, when Herod hears about this star, um, he's thinking, oh no, there's a rival to my throne. And it wasn't just three kings. Okay? I know we're just saying we three kings. That's the tradition. We have a picture of three kings because there's three gifts. And it's so much easier to fit three into a little nativity scene and into our imaginations. But realistically, you would never cross the desert with three people. That is suicide. You're open to being raided by bandits. Uh, you don't have a lot of resources just on your own. It, an entourage always traveled together. So the kings likely came with an entourage. It's more like 300 than it is three. We don't know how many, but 300 would be way more accurate than three. So <laughs> Jerusalem is not ignorant to the appearance of these people dressed totally differently from the east, what are they doing here? We saw a star, and now Herod is biting his fingernails, right? I mean, you, th you see this big, this big mass of power coming. Oh, it's happening right now. Herod wants to kill whatever just started. And so here they come. I don't know where, why I got, where we got off on that, but those are things we could talk about, but we're shelving that because we said enough. Um, but there we go. But Christmas 
Christmas is worship. So we see the kings responding to what God has done. Christ is born. They come to adore him. One last thing on this part about Christmas is worship is uh, it's actually in the name. You might, you probably know this already, but Christmas means Christ's mass. And it comes from, of course, the Roman Catholic idea of mass. On Christmas, you would celebrate Christ's mass and mass is the name for their service, uh, their worship service. So um, right there, we have in the name worship Christ. That's, that's in the name Christmas. So, all right. Now, before we look at parts of the text here and how, the, how these kings worship, I actually want you guys to revisit the hymnals you have um, because while I was looking through some of the songs, I flipped to the back and by chance forgot all about this great statement of worship that Calvary Chapel put in the back of their hymnals. Now, I'm assuming this came from Pastor Chuck Smith. Um, At the least, he would have okayed the publication of this, because if I recall, this was on the bulletins of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Um, I don't know how many guys ever went there back when Pastor Chuck was alive. Hands? I just want to know who I'm talking to. Oh my goodness. Like three of us. Wow. Different times. Okay. Well, just so you know, Calvary Chapel, Pastor Chuck Smith the founder of Calvary Chapel. <laughs> um, I went to school down there. Um, so I, I had a lot of time at the church there and had some classes with Pastor Chuck. Um, but yeah, this, um, the statement of belief on worship in the back of their hymnal is pretty cool. So it's the bottom part. And there's four statements. It says, we believe worship of God should be spiritual. Therefore, we remain flexible and yielded to the Holy Spirit to direct our worship. Two, we believe worship of God should be inspirational. Therefore, we give a great place to music in our worship. Three, we believe worship of God should be intelligent. Therefore, Our services are designed with great emphasis upon the teaching of the word of God that he might instruct us how he should be worshipped. And number four, we believe worship of God should be fruitful. Therefore, we look for his love in our lives as the supreme manifestation that we have truly been worshipping him. So, I revisited that after all these years. I think I just took this for granted. Like you grow up, you know, fish grows up in water. It doesn't really think about what water is. Um, I grew up in Calvary Chapel. I kind of took Calvary Chapel's traditions and the emphasis on the word and the way they worship for granted. And so, you know, all these years later, I I read this uh, this week and I'm like, wow, I really appreciate how compact and concise these four statements are because they seem to really get a good handle on worship. Notice what this does not say. It does not say that worship is that one part of the service where we sing songs. (laughs) That is not worship. It is worship. But that is not all that worship is. Now, that's part of it. Worship should be inspirational. So we do a lot of singing, it says, because singing is inspirational. It's beautiful. It has art and craft and creativity. But there are other ways to do that too. 
Um, and that's just one of the aspects of worship, that it should be inspirational or musical. So I really appreciate that. And what I want to do, if you guys are okay with this, is if you're not, it's too bad. Um, <laughs> um, I'll just talk about stars again. Um, <laughs> I want to go through the passage and look at how the wise men worshipped in this way. Okay? Yeah, I really like that. Um, because I think sometimes Calvary Chapel forgets even what they are. And um, we're, we remember that we teach the word and we're almost through the whole testament for the second time here. Um, but yeah, we remember that. And I'm like, okay, we do songs, but so does everyone else. You know, we just forget this whole picture. And I, I like, I like this. So we're going to, we're going to go along. We're going to go alongside that and look at the worship of the Kings. Okay. So first worship is spiritual. So we see that the kings here are led by a star. Where is he, verse 2, who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So what triggers this? They journey. Some people think they're from Babylon. This is thousands of miles across the desert. What triggers them to come? They see a star. They're being led. And then in the uh, down toward verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So in verse 9, actually, it said that the star had, that they saw when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It's very clear in this passage that the star is playing a major significant role to their coming to worship Christ. Okay, And we know they're not just coming to give them gifts. They're not just coming to check out the site or something amazing. We've seen it twice now that they came to worship him. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And then we saw later that they opened their, they saw the mother and his child and they fell down and worshiped him. So there are two explicit mentions from the kings that they're here to worship Christ. And the star is what leads them to this worship. Okay. So what we see is that spiritual worship is a journey. Now, there are other forms of worship that are not necessarily journeys, but spiritual worship is a journey. Because you are in position A, and then something comes to lead. I'm saying something right now on purpose to be vague. <laughs> something comes to lead you over here. And in, in the act of obedience is worship, following the leader, and then being led to the destination. This is all worship. It's a journey. And when we worship God, we do not sit in the same place that we started. Now, you can worship sitting in a seat, right? That's not what I'm saying. We are led by the Spirit of God to worship God. And when he leads us, we are not left in our same place. Worship is spiritual. He leads us. Now, we can come to worship him with a script, and every church does this. We have a plan, right? 
you're going to start like this. Um, I think typically the churches I grew up in, it's kind of like you start with a song, then there are announcements, and then you have a few more songs, and then there's this, there's the message, and then uh, there's a prayer and maybe one more song, and then you go and have coffee and donuts in the foyer, right? Like that's the script. Um, others have elaborate scripts. Um, worship starts with the script, but here's the important thing. That worship is spiritual. You're not led by the script. You're led by the spirit. So we, therefore, remain flexible and yielded to the Holy Spirit to direct our worship. (laughs) Now, you are not worshiping God if the spirit leads you this way and you say, that's not how we always do it. Or that's not what we're comfortable with. Or that's not what we planned. My plan is not worship. We come to God intentionally. We come with the plan. We come knowing what to expect to a degree. But the Spirit can always say, wait a minute. You saw these stars all your life. You've been studying them every single night. But tonight it's going to look different. Tonight it's going to beckon you to do something new. To go somewhere where you haven't been. So when worship is spiritual, it is always a journey and it will lead you to the you that you've never been before because you are becoming more like God in worship. That's what spiritual worship is. We are led by the spirit of God because I cannot lead myself past myself. I need someone beyond me to lead me beyond myself. That is why we need the spirit to lead us. Humanity cannot outgrow humanity without the help of God. He leads us beyond ourselves. And that's also why we have worship leaders, because we hope and trust and pray that God is using these leaders in our lives. Like Sandy leads the musical part of worship often, and so does uh, John and Billy Bueller, and so do I, because You and I need to be invited. We need to be called out of the comfort zone we entered in, out of the things in our heads that we came in with. And we need to be called to the throne of God. And God uses people to do that. So we see that worship's a journey and that they were led. But in this leading, and worship is spiritual, means that It's also spiritual warfare. I don't think we always think of this, that when we enter the sanctuary to worship God, it's a spiritual battle. Maybe you know this because you fight with your spouse on the way to church or your kids, or maybe you remember that time you fought with your kids or you're upset because so-and-so did what they always do to you when you walk into church and like you can't stand why do they have to be here you know like there are things that are happening um worship when we engage and we are led beyond ourselves to the living god you are engaging in spiritual warfare because the demons hate this we see in the old testament i believe it's first chronicles chapter 20 um it just came to me so it's i think it's there um when Israel goes out to battle against their enemies, they put the worship leaders in this one instance. Hezekiah puts the worship leaders in the front of the army and it confuses the enemy. The demons hate that we gather to worship Christ. And we need to be mindful of that, that when we are led by the spirit into worship, we need the spirit to battle for us. Because you don't know the things that are holding you back. 
You don't know all the excuses that you can, well, you might know the excuses you can make. Um, and there's so many reasons that we have to battle against those and say, no, this matters. This really does matter. And I'm going to be led. I'm going to follow the spirit, for our case, the spirit, not the star. And I'm going to go and do battle. Now, when you do this, the forces of darkness are not happy. And Herod is not happy. Herod gets in on it a little bit. Oh, tell me about this. I want to know more. So that Herod can kill Christ. That's why he wants to know. And as a result of the wise men visiting Christ and leaving secretly without telling Herod, Herod doesn't just kill Jesus. He misses him, fortunately. Um, Herod kills all the other baby boys in Bethlehem. There is warfare when we are led into worship. Now, when I just worship out of my own, like, this is just what I want to do. Cool. But I think sometimes um, darkness might be happy that you're just leading yourself because it knows, oh, they're going to stay tepid. They're never going to grow. I'll let them think they're so happy leading themselves. But when we rise and allow the spirit to lead us, there is real battle. And so... I, every week, I actually, we have anointing oil. You always always see it up here in case someone needs it in the service. Um, I pray over the doorways of the sanctuary and over the platform and over the sound room because God knows that's where the demons live. (laughs) Um, We pray and we we consecrate this room because this is not just a multi-use purpose facility. I mean, the facility is. It's used all the time for multi-purpose. But I don't want us to be another group of people who sit in yet another event that happens in here. You don't know what's happened over the week. You don't know what people have said, what they've been meditating on, or what has been said from up here. You don't know. So every Sunday night, we consecrate the sanctuary for the single purpose of being led to the presence of God and to be grown into his likeness. I guarantee you, the devil hates that. But I don't want him to think that he's welcome here either. When we come in, we can know that we're in, the, we're in God's space. Okay, worship is spiritual, which means it's led, which also means that it's warfare. Second, worship is inspirational. So, therefore, we give a great place to music in our worship, which means that worship is creative. That's what we mean by inspirational. It's creative. God doesn't want worship that is just uh, drab, I mean, boring, um, not your best, just kind of like Cain going, oh yeah, I'll grab some. You know, Abel gave to God the best of his flocks, and then it said Cain just gave him some of the fruits of the ground. Like, that's the difference here. Abel's looking for the best. I want, I want to give to God... Of all that I have, here's the most beautiful, here's the most perfect that I can give to him. And Cain's just like, yeah, it's just worship. I mean, what does it matter if I use this or that? No, it matters. Sandy, I know this about Sandy, and I knew this about Richard. They don't just flippantly roll the dice on what songs to sing every week. (laughs) There's intentionality in choosing that. The prayers that we pray in our service, there's intentionality. We're seeking out the best that we can offer God. That does not mean it's never boring, because sometimes things just don't fit your fancy. And frankly, I think if worship bores us, it's we who need a change and not worship, but that's not a thing. Um, it's creative. So this means that the Spirit leads our whole selves into whole 
person worship. Body, soul, spirit. That's worship. It's not just my mind, but there is actual physical things you can worship with. There are bodily ways you can worship. Singing, receiving communion, standing is a form of worship. Um, you guys know we haven't done confession in a couple weeks, so this is a festive season right now. But when we do, when we confess our sins, what do we do afterward? Well, we light a candle, yes, um, to remind us that we're forgiven. See, a visual reminder. But we stand. We stand because we can stand before the God who says, I do not condemn you, nor do I cast you out. There are so many different ways that we worship. We worship body, soul, and spirit. And this is what Jesus said in Mark 12. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We're called to love him with our whole person, not just one part of us. So here we worship with song, with music, with body and kneeling, with candles and light, especially during Advent, we turn lights off and stuff. Um, We also worship by holding and receiving bread and cup. These are all ways of worship. These are all bringing different elements of it to bring a more creative whole person experience because worship is inspirational. Uh, With um, the wise men here, they're, they're clearly inspired by the star. I mean, I can't really hang it on anything better than that, but it just seemed clear to me like there was something about what they saw that made them get up and travel for months at great expense to come and worship this king that was born. Only inspiration can get us out of ourselves. Well, spiritual inspiration. Third, worship is intelligent. So, Calvary Chapel says, our services are designed with great emphasis upon the teaching of the word of God that he might instruct us how he should be worshipped. I love that. I love that little part they added there. Like, yes, they could have said, yep, worship's intelligent, so we intelligently examine the scriptures. Yes, we do that. But there was a reason for it, so that he might instruct us how he should be worshipped. So if I was one of the kings, I might be tempted to say, Whoo! we found the general area of the star. We got to Jerusalem. Wow, where is this king? And Herod's like, I don't know. And everyone else in Jerusalem's like, we don't know. And like, well, we did our best. <laughs> Done. They could have. But instead, they kept on seeking out, how can we properly worship this king we've come to seek? And so what they do is they ask, what do the scriptures say? Right? Herod gets the experts together for him. And the answer for the last leg of their journey is the scriptures. The prophet Micah tells him, this is where he's born. He's in, he's in Bethlehem. So yes, that means that you can't just settle in the comfy uh, niceness of Herod's palace in Jerusalem. You got to go a little bit further to that little town just over the hill. And you got you to gotta look through the slums of Bethlehem. And if Jesus was indeed born in a stable or in a cave or the different ideas, we don't know for sure. Um, but wherever, they had to look low to find him. 
Would they have done that on their own? Nah. They probably would have found Herod's firstborn son and say, this must be him. Logically, in human terms, that would be the next king. But instead, the scriptures guided them because worship is scriptural. And when the scriptures guide us, we get to the heart of worship and they get to see Christ himself. Um, What this also means then, and here's the balance between worship is inspirational and worship is intelligent, is that sometimes when we say worship is inspirational, we just want worship to be emotional because that is inspirational. And so we want our worship to be emotional and I'm totally okay with emotional worship. I'm totally okay if people stand up and raise their hands and if people are um, just being festive. Like it's worship the king. Like emotional is okay. And having emotions in our worship is okay. And all the different forms of worship. But here's what we have to be careful of is that we're not led by emotions. We're led by the scriptures. Worship is scriptural, not emotional. So yes, it can have emotions, but it's led by scripture. And here's why this is important. I don't always feel thankful. How many of you felt thankful when you came in tonight? That's Christmas, so maybe a lot of us did. But some of us are like, there's ice, and it's cold, and maybe you didn't feel thankful. can't believe it snowed. <laughs> we don't always feel thankful when we come in, but the scriptures tell us, enter his gates with thanksgiving. So what do we do? We're led by the scriptures, and we say, I'm going to find one thing to be thankful for. And then quickly there's a second and a third But would I always feel like giving thanks if I let my feelings lead me? Absolutely not. I don't always feel like praising God for who he is. Sometimes I'm not quite sure he is who he says he is. You've been there, right? I don't mean in my general view of life, but sometimes you just feel like, I don't know if if he knows what he's doing right now. Sometimes we don't feel like praising his sovereignty. But the scriptures say, Psalm 100, enter his courts, with songs of praise. So we enter his courts with some songs. And you may not feel like singing, but the worship's leading you to sing. And you start to sing. And now the whole person is starting to feel a little more aligned with God. I don't always feel like humbling myself in confession. Sometimes I'd rather just skip that part. Maybe you too. The silence, especially. Some people... No one's saying anything for a whole minute. I don't like that. Brandon, say something quick. But the scriptures lead us. 1 John 1 leads us to confess our sins. And so we confess our sins. I don't always feel forgiven. I don't always feel like standing before God. Sometimes I want to be in despair and wallow in my sinfulness and say, I don't, I'm just terrible. And we never want to get out of that. God says, stand up, sinner, I have forgiven you. He said to the woman, rise and go and sin no more. So we stand because the scriptures tell us that we have been forgiven if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness, 1 John 1. So because the scriptures lead us, we remember that we're forgiven. But I don't always feel that way. I don't always feel like listening to a sermon, you might be thinking. I don't have to listen to it. I just have to listen to myself, though. It's terribly annoying. 
I understand. Some nights, Pastor Brandon just doesn't have it. <laughs> I don't, you don't always feel like listening to a sermon. But the word tells us that it changes us. And that we're to study to show ourselves approved. He told, Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. So we do it. Because we trust that God is leading us in the scriptures. You and I don't always feel like praying for others. But the scriptures tell us, 1 Timothy chapter 2 actually says, when the church assembles, you're to pray for others. So, because the scriptures lead us, we pray for others. But man, sometimes you just don't want to pray for that government ruler one more time. Or that neighbor. Or that person that you need to forgive. But we do it because we're led. Sometimes you don't always feel like standing to receive the cup and the bread. You don't always feel worthy. You don't always feel... Sometimes you just literally don't feel like getting up. (laughs) But the scriptures tell us to do this as a memory of Christ. So we do it. Do you see my point? I had basically walked us through our worship. And I'm pointing out we don't always feel like these things. But we're led because our worship is intelligent, which means it's scriptural, not emotional. We trust that God knows what we need, even when we don't know what we need. The kings may not have felt like searching Bethlehem. I certainly, after eating at Herod's table, having the servants come in, things you hadn't tasted, fresh fruit after a long journey in the wilderness, clean water that isn't tepid from the heat. Like, there's a lot of reasons to just keep your feet up in Herod's palace. He's entertaining these important guests. And oh, Herod would love to detain them as long as he can and kill Christ if he gets a chance, right? But the wise men let scripture lead them, not their feelings lead them. And so forth. Worship is fruitful. I love that last part of their beliefs on worship. Worship of God should be fruitful. Therefore, we look for his love in our lives as the supreme manifestation that we have truly been worshiping him. (laughs) How do you know you've been worshiping God? Because you change. That's the proof. If there's no fruit in my life, there's something wrong with my worship. And I don't mean your worship method is off. Okay, there are different methods of worship. It's that you have not been doing what these kings do when they worship God. Okay, there's nothing in here about they had the right songs to sing on the right day. There's nothing in here about they had the cup and the bread and they partook. There's none of those things in this worship here. Look at how they worship. It's in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Which, by the way, was a totally another trail we could have done, done on a message in this passage. The gifts. They're big. They're epic. Their worship is fruitful because their worship 
is interactive. The wise men, (laughs) the kings don't just show up, sit down and observe the child. Isn't this cool? Wow, do something for us, Jesus. They engage. They fall on their faces and they worship and they give gifts. There's something happening here. Now, they aren't doing this, like giving gifts in order to get God on their good side. You have to remember, God's already acted and they're responding, okay? God's acted. What they're doing is in response to the fact that he's come. So now they are returning God's act with their act. This is the cycle of worship, is that God moves in us, and we can either play passive spectator sport and be like, yay, go church staff. (laughs) Or we can sit there and be passive, or we can be interactive. The wise men know that God acted, so they act in return. They give him something. They come into his presence, not empty-handed, but with something. And, and we know their worship's fruitful because in verse 12, we read, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. What happened with Christ here changed them because yeah, on one hand, they didn't want to tell Herod, so they went another way. But on the other hand, every time you worship and bow down and give your gifts to Christ, you go home another way. You live your life another way. You do not go the same way you came in. It'd actually be really cool if you literally did that. You guys all enter in one door and go out the other door, but that'd be a mess of organization. Just saying, it might be cool. Um, But literally though, like our lives change and we should start walking another way. The wise men change. They're visited by an angel. They obey this is worship. Okay, so quite literally, you know, worship, we already said, it requires my body, it requires my soul, my emotions, my dreams, my desires, it requires my spirit, the part of me that is most connected with God. All of these come to the table. And that's the first thing we see is that they fell down and worshiped him, which is actually a bit of a redundancy because the word worship here is proskuneo, It's the primary use, the primary Greek word of worship through the New Testament is proskuneo, and it means to prostrate oneself, which is to fall down. And it looks like this. So everyone online, you can see this too. (laughs) It looks. On your knees with your face pressed into the ground. Now, your reaction might be, that looks very Muslim. Because <laughs> they stole it from Christians. <laughs> and then we put pews in our churches so we can't prostrate ourselves anymore. <laughs> Unless you want a big egg on your head. Uh, but that's, that's actually the New Testament form of worship. Proskuneo, to fall down, to prostrate oneself. They embody the worship. They fall down before Christ. This is interactive for them. Um, And also, they give him gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are very costly. They were not native to the land of Israel. They would always be imported. So very costly. They bring them as gifts. Now, of course, we've heard the symbolism, right? Gold. In fact, this was in the song we're singing, We Three Kings. Gold's because he's a king. Frankincense, uh, because he's a a, a priest, 
They offered frankincense on the altar of incense. And the myrrh, because he's a prophet who's going to die and be embalmed and come back to life. Um, that's the common interpretation. Um, I, I don't know why we're not making enough of the fact that all three of these also were in the temple. The temple was overlaid with gold. The priests offered frankincense on the incense altar, which was the prayers going up to God. And the myrrh was used in the anointing oil as they consecrated everything to God. Um, I think there might be something there too, that here they're recognizing God in human flesh. The temple has come to earth. Um, the Holy of Holies is here. But nonetheless, they're giving gifts. Now, we are not able to wrap physical objects and give them to God. It'd be kind of silly. And then I'd have to collect them and figure out what to do with them because I can't quite figure out how to get that to be done. And that isn't necessarily what God wants from us either. Um, God wants us to give him different kinds of offerings now. Now that Christ has died and been raised, we don't bring animals and slaughter them, but we are still bringing offerings. We're bringing him our thanks. And the Psalms say this. God says in Psalm 50, I don't want any more of your animals. It is he who gives their thanks to me as worship that I receive. The Psalms say that in a few other places, that he wants our praise and worship as our sacrifice. How about our very lives? Romans chapter 12 says, this is your reasonable act of service to be renewed in the transformation of your mind to give our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Paul says those sacrifices they give morning and evening in the temple are now replaced by you giving your body and your life to God all your days of your life. You belong to him. You are the offering. And so we, whether we physically or in our souls, prostrate ourselves before God, we're offering us as the myrrh, us as the frankincense. We are the gold. We pour ourselves and our lives and our desires into him that is worship. The God who is given, we receive and we give it back. God's not pleased with what we bring on our own account. We're giving back to him what he's given to us. And that is worship. Recognizing the source from which it came and giving it back to him and saying, we thank you for this and we want to use it for your purposes. Rather than hoarding and keeping and saying, mine, I earned this, I achieved this. That demonizes us. That makes us into evil creatures. But the constantly giving back to him keeps us free. It keeps us light. It keeps us able to grow. It keeps us in this cyclical pattern of worship. God acting and us responding. God acting and us responding. And the more we give back to him, the more he can give to us. And the worship intensifies and it grows. And we can continually walk another way. That is the true worship that we see. That's what fruitful worship looks like. So do not be content with just receiving sermons like it's an item to consume or just listening to worship songs like it's a thing to choose your style of or basically these forms of worship that your phone can perform. Ouch. If worship to you can be done by your phone, it can play me sermons. It can play me music. We haven't quite gotten into that fruitful, interactive shape of worship yet. Because God wants all of us, and that's what we're to be offering. 
to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 